0: Welcome to Building LA, a podcast about the buildings and projects shaping the future of Los Angeles, hosted by me, Sam Pepper. I'm a licensed architect, developer, and project manager, specializing in large complex projects. And as you can probably tell, I'm not a lifelong Angelino. Each episode features conversations with the industry leaders driving those projects forward. We discuss what inspires them, reveal the untold stories behind these impactful projects and talk candidly about the challenges and opportunities facing the design architecture and real estate industry in Los Angeles. Please subscribe to building LA on Spotify, Apple podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have a few seconds, please rate the show. We really appreciate it. And we'd love to hear from you now onto the episode. Today, we're talking to Mark Zadzinski, a principal at Smith Group, about the California Institute of Technology's Chen Neuroscience Research Building, located on their campus in Pasadena. This project has won a ton of awards for lab design, campus design, and sustainability, and it serves as a gateway to the campus when approaching from the north. In this episode, Mark's passion for this project is so clear as is the commitment his team at Smith Group has to delivering an incredible project for this scientific community. We also discussed the similarities between architects and research scientists, what it's like to study architecture in Japan, and how to maintain a strong team dynamic on a very tough project. I was very happy to have Mark join the show, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Can you just tell us a little bit about who this is
1: for, and what they are doing in this building. So, this is a, the Chen Neuroscience Building. This is on the corner of uh, Wilson and Del Mar in Pasadena, California. It's a new administrative building for the Division of Biology and Bioengineering. The Neuroscience Institute, they're focusing on treatments, discoveries, and the development of the brain. Quite a smart uh, group of people who are occupying this building on a, on a regular basis then. <laughs> Yeah, actually, it's quite funny to be at Caltech as well, because when I first had the chance to go there, there was chatter that Stephen Hawking was on campus that day. And, you know, as an architect, you're like, oh, you know, we have Frank Gehry, we have all these people, but they're all stars in our field and Stephen Hawking. And I feel like I was able to be part of something really momentous. Oh, it's fantastic to be part of and be on the campus. And you know, there's pictures of Einstein in places we would just have lunch in, and you're just like, it gives you tingles when you walk through campus. It's just a great part of my life to be uh, able to work on there. Are there Nobel Prize winners? There is, actually. Um, one of the PI's principal investigators on the project, David Baltimore, is a Nobel recipient and occupies a building. And it's it's one of those kind of untouchable things as an architect, but... Fascinating things for humanity to be able to build a building where someone like that gets to occupy it. To get into the nuts and bolts a little bit, can you describe the building's program? So, some of the program right now is definitely neuroscience because it's a neuroscience research building, but tied to that are general labs for research collaboration. And with these collaboration research areas, you have biologists, neuroscientists, economists, chemists. Physicists, computer scientists, social scientists, engineers, all working in the same building. Hmm. And we have a lot of collaboration in this building. So what we've done with the spaces is have, I would say, the serendipitous interactions that make Mm -hmm. science possible, where we didn't know that a neuroscientist talking to a biologist and these kind of fun interactions could potentially happen in our building. Was that a key
0: discussion with the client initially then? that How do you actually create spaces where a biologist would be talking to a chemist and to facilitate those kind of
1: interactions? Well, it's funny. So when we were early on in planning, we were finding out that these silos were being built of, you have uh, neuroscience, you have biology, and these are departments in other buildings, and they don't necessarily leave their offices. Like if, mm. you know, this is outside of it, but you watch Big Bang Theory, and you have Mm -hmm. these astrophysicists who do not talk to other type of people. And this is absolutely the truth. And we were discussing this early on where how can we create these moments of serendipity of what if you're at a lunch table with all these people together? Maybe Mm -hmm. it'll happen, maybe it won't, but what we're finding is it is. And the research could be shared without... A different platform but within a building itself
0: i'm really interested in how you build adaptability flexibility into these
1: lab spaces
0: was that a part of the discussion and i'm i'm assuming it was from I'm day curious. one
1: yeah okay absolutely from day one what we looked at was how can we make a flexible space adaptable transformable and not a static thing. So Hmm. we looked at flexible space and more than the ability to move furniture around, but the floor plan was designed to allow suites the ability to be empty, completely redesigned to the exact specifications. The dramatic shift designing spaces to meet the detailed needs of the new PIs, the old PIs, and if the space is available. So we utilize a a utility chassis and a central spine approach where everything is kind of centralized um, one of my friends described building lab buildings as building rocket ships in the ground because wow. they're so complicated and they're so technically unique. But the way I kind of feel is it you could build any building. It's just about how many complex elements you have to combine. A neuroscience lab has everything at once it feels like. You have, you have to keep all the labs clear of fresh air. You have to make sure that Every type of chemical or oxygen or gas is coming in cleanly and safely. Working mm-hmm. with the City of Pasadena Fire was challenged because these are these are very complicated spaces that you want to keep every occupant as safe as humanly possible. So by doing that, you create these chassis and like safe zones essentially for the building.
0: You said there's a central chassis. So I mean, I think a lot of our our listeners are architects. So what is it? What does the kind of the floor plan look like?
1: So, if you look at our our buildings in L, so what we have are lab pieces on the top and to the right and the center is the node of collaboration. So, everything comes into this node, which um, Francisco Owens and Kai Young Yu, our designers of the project, basically made it as a clearing in the forest where you walk into the space and you have this just, you know, when you walk into a forest and like, oh my God, there's this amazing clearing Mm -hmm. and it's the space that brings people together. So all these central spines go into this node. All the PI offices are in the central space where if they need to go to the kitchen, all these different types of people for biology, neuroscience mm. have to interact with each other. You mm-hmm. know? And then all the people from their labs have to come into the space as a, a nodal point throughout the project. It's kind of a fun, it's a fun event. I I it was great to see it after COVID being you. So it's a fun social experiment as well to a
0: certain extent. You- oh my god, it's fantastic. Yeah. No, I love that. I love the reference to big bang theory and just I I picture I don't have too many friends who are who are scientists fortunately. I should I should probably work on that, but I have to imagine that there are stereotypes within within the industry that get apply to each of these types of
1: scientists and they all are probably somewhat true somewhat not true and i feel like they all have the same kind of outlook on each other like architects look at different people in our industry and it's kind of the same thing it's like oh you do that you're this in doing a little bit of research on this
0: building it looked like there were some design initiatives that your team at smith group took on to make sure that this building was a really, really healthy place to work for its occupants. Can you just tell us a little bit about that?
1: So one thing we did was a transparent lab design. And what that means is we did open laboratories back to back, allowing light to go all the way through the spaces through the building. And by creating natural light, it changes the occupants kind of mindset of what you know, daylighting is kind of overthought in a lot of projects and lab buildings. They work in the kind of like the closet almost sometimes where mm-hmm. you see these labs and it's dark and I don't know if you remember architecture school where you, it's like, turn the lights off, let me focus, this is this. And, and I think some lab people are the same way, but the natural light actually really creates a a sense of balance in their life. You know, you know when daytime is, you know when nighttime is and the circadian rhythms of the day is an amazing function of our our design profession that we kind of overlook sometimes. I think also the blurring distinction of spaces where we have the central spine going into this clearing in the central collaboration area, it gives people more than just like a hotel to go to. Cause I mm-hmm. think, you know, like you go to a hotel building you have a central spine, you go to your room, you go to the elevator, you go home. The building that we're trying to do is more than that, where you have collaboration, you have outdoor balconies, you have views of the mountains. You It gives them more of a sense of home and not just a place to check in and check out.
0: You mentioned the, the, the daylight in these lab spaces. Are these scientists spending a lot of their day in these labs? And is that why
1: it was important to kind of bring a lot of natural light in yeah i mean if you look at architects in the same way Mm -hmm. we get very passionate with the research or design we're working on and we've overfocused. i mean i prepping for this call yesterday i looked at the time and it was 12 a.m and i'm like I, i got excited going through this project again i haven't just you get passionate about the work you do you're proud of the work you do and you lose you lose focus on reality at times and you're just you're all in, and I think researchers, many I've met, have the same kind of passion and twinkle in their eye, where they're just they love what they do, and mm-hmm. they do it to help promote the science they're researching, change something that's wrong, and do something that's right. And I just admire that. Well, first of all, I really appreciate that you you prepped for the for this for this call. But
0: <laughs> I tend to agree with you, and I, I find myself often getting into a groove. With something, yeah. and I think that tends to be with me something that's more design related in that I'm doing. And I'll get on a roll and suddenly look up and re- realize, oh, I should probably eat something or be probably have a glass of water. And <laughs> exactly. I, it, but it's also a sign that you're you're doing you're in the right career. I think when when you do, when you do have that because you are you are, you're enjoying it and, and you get a little obsessive and, you know, there's obviously a balance, but, but, uh, in the end of the day, it is, I think a positive. So the massing of the building and to our listeners, I would certainly encourage to take a look at the building on Smith Group's website. And it was certainly publicized a lot. I think I saw it on Dezean as well. The massing of the building is very interesting and it allows for a lot of really rich exterior
1: landscape. Can you talk a little bit about how Smith Group approached the initial massing? So I think early on in the project development, we discussed with the researchers on how we could get light into the basement areas. We were able to achieve light on the three levels of the building above the ground. We have two levels below ground, and the first level of basement below is 20 feet below the ground level. We first thought about using light wells and Maybe just, you know, as you see some buildings, you create like a five-foot opening and create some light wells in. And then our landscape designers and our lead designer, Francisco, and Bill Diefenbach, our fantastic architecture record, and Alex Munoz, our lead lab planner, was able to kind of break the form and break the idea of instead of just doing light wells, let's just open up the whole area and create... almost like a walkout basement and terrace the whole thing out, create a bridgeway from the breezeway to connect everything and create this completely open area for the research to have inside, outside areas. The researchers themselves were kind of blown away because typically they're in a basement, like I mentioned earlier. They're in dark spaces. They, you know, some of the researchers uh, have large machines that One actually does robotics and he creates his own pieces of robotics with the CNC machine, but has a beautiful view of the garden. I I utterly am impressed with the people in the building, but I admire our design team and our planners for how they look at things. Our landscape architect, uh, Spurlock, brought native plants and native vegetation that were, um, they didn't require a lot of water and kind of kept our lead goals intact doing that. The sustainability of the building seems to be at the forefront
0: of a lot of what I've read about it. Was there a goal that was set at the outset of the design about what maybe certifications the
1: building wanted to pursue? So our initial goal was to get lead gold for the project. Uh, For lab building, these are heavy energy suckers. They kind of, they take a lot of energy. And like I mentioned before, it's like a rocket ship in the ground. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of mechanical systems, a lot of redundancies, because by having these, you want to make sure that if there is a chemical that someone's trying to use in a lab, you have the air handling capacity to get it out. Caltech is an amazing university that uses bloom energy. Bloom Energy is their first source of energy or the first – that's our power supply for the project and most of the buildings on campus. They also utilize solar on all their parking garages to help offset that as well. The city of Pasadena is actually our secondary source of power if Bloom goes out. Hmm. And then if we have any other issues, we have uh, emergency connectors we could do. But one way we really try to do this was track all of our materials – make sure they were locally sourced. We use native vegetation, like I mentioned, indoor-outdoor water reduction. Water reduction in lab buildings are very challenging as well. One specific way we uh, reduce indoor water consumption was in the laboratory sterilization equipment. And in labs, you have to have a static, clean piece of equipment to get the right type of research. So they always are sterilizing equipment. And by creating a closed loop system, this was utilized by dramatically reducing the water consumption with the sterilization equipment. These were some of the ways we help reduce the um, energy savings.
0: And in order to achieve those goals, this project, and I think lab projects in general have, you know, very large teams of consultants with all the expertise that's needed. So can you uh, give a few shout outs to some of the
1: other consultants who are on the project? Absolutely. So our structural engineer was Seifel Bouquet. Our mechanical MEP engineers were AEI. Our civil engineer was KPFF. Acoustics and vibration were Colin Gordon. life Safety was TK1SC. Uh, wind was CPP. And Smith Group was responsible for all the architecture, design, lab planning, sustainability, and interior design. How was Smith Group awarded the job? Uh, was it a competitive bidding process? So, it wasn't. So, back in 2012, Smith Group was approached to do a fundraising material package for a new um, biology building for Caltech. And then that package was sent out to people. In late 2016, two Chinese billionaire philanthropists, Ting Chao Chen and Christy Liu, were inspired by new research they saw. And what this did was spark the Chen Institute, with a billion dollar donation from the chens. And then they were able to donate $115 million to Caltech for this neuroscience institute. So they approached us to look at using this package we prepared and relook at this as a biology neuroscience building. And the project was delivered design build with Hansel Phelps, I believe. Could you walk us through that delivery delivery process? So this is a progressive design build. So the architect is awarded first and then the contractor. So this isn't the most typical of design build awards where it's um, almost a forced marriage because a lot of people may not know, but design build, the contract switch, it it completely changes when the contractor comes on board. So us as an architect is under the contractor and not the owner anymore. So Mm -hmm. what this does is it scares people to death some days but what you need to know is the relationships you build throughout this whole process is how you make these buildings the best buildings in the world and that's how any of this kind of comes together that makes sense to me this is not a cheap building how much did the overall project cost the project itself was a little under 200 million dollars about 192 million one thing we had to do was Pasadena is a gem for history, where Green and Green has a lot of buildings. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of beautiful buildings. And one thing we had was a California courtyard of old historic buildings we had to move down the street before we even started the project. Tell me a little bit more about that. So, on our project, we had some planning provisions from the city that we had to move some bungalows that had a, a special historical presence to it. So, we had to move these bungalows right down the street. And then once we did that, we had a 200-year-old oak tree that we had to move to the other side of our site. And that was one of the large pieces of our project that we wanted to make sure we, we kept these pieces of history and maintained them throughout construction. So we have some amazing photos of moving trees before we started the project. It was such an amazing feat for a project like this. I would love to see those photos, so I might oh I, I could send I'm, you. I yeah. might hit
0: you up for that. <laughs> this is clearly you know an incredible project uh, for you for Smith Group. What are some of the key lessons
1: that you take away from this building? I would say some of the key lessons for a complex building such as this is to maintain your stress levels throughout a project like this. Be kind to others, and I know it sounds cliche or whatever, but everybody's in it together. Every mm-hmm. single trade partner, every everyone's trying to do the best job they can. And I think when things got out of control or you feel like they are, it's about just keeping yourself together. We we went through COVID during this whole project. We were in the middle of CA, COVID hit. And it was really about keeping calm and carrying on. I mean, you know, like you're from mm-hmm. England, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't stress the early collaboration and teaming. Um, we had early... Integration from our um, trade partners for the facade to the curtain wall was a complex curtain wall. We couldn't have done that undulating curtain wall without Kovac on the project. They were just amazing. Um, Berg Electric on in, on electrical and Pac on mechanical and plumbing. They helped us on every single piece during the design process. And it just made things beautifully integrated. Hmm. And the last one I could say for lessons learned is campus standards. Um, hmm. If you've never worked on university, universities spend a lot of money on their standards and you need to know them before you start drawing. And we were lucky enough to dive into them and really get into knowing what Caltech wanted and required for their building before we moved at such a fast pace. You know, 42 months is a a fast project and Mm -hmm. a lab like this typically would take almost twice as long. So, you need to do your homework and be prepared.
0: Yeah. I think you mentioned the stress levels and My role as a project manager, I think a lot of that is maintaining the tone of the project throughout and and ensuring that everyone who's working on the project is bringing their best self because everyone's on the same team and things happen and there's miscommunications on everything. But if you have a foundation of knowing each other as human beings, then you're able to rise above it and get to solutions without there being additional unnecessary stress, which is unproductive stress. And so I appreciate you saying that. Exactly. I'm also interested to hear the building is a really beautiful building. Is there any public component to it if people want to go
1: visit it? The inside of the building is for academia and for the mm-hmm. the researchers. But the outside of the project is open to the public. More walk, which is what connects the whole campus is a spine that connects through camp, uh, Caltech and right on Del Mar and Wilson. You could walk through the landscape, walk around the building and enjoy the architecture. It's a, it's a beautiful building. I am proud to be able to say I worked in it and our, our company did a great job. Really happy to be a part of it.
0: Well, congratulations on a great project. Thank you. So, Mark, I'm going to transition to the second half of the conversation and focus on you and talk a little bit about your career to date. So, I'd like to go back and talk about the start of your career. You studied at SciArc and participated in the late Greg Walsh's celebrated Japan studio. Take us back to that time. What was that experience like?
1: That was one of actually the best times of my life, being able to spend my last semester at SciArc in Japan with Greg and nine other students. We did an exchange program at Kyoto Seika University. We basically traveled from the bottom of Japan to the top of Japan, and we would spend two to three weeks in a couple pieces of areas. We would learn Japanese history one day in a kind of academic setting and then go to that site the next day. I've never had learning at this capacity where you you could read textbooks all day, but if you don't actually experience what you read or you go to, it doesn't resonate the same way. Greg was one of those people where he wasn't just a teacher who said, you know, you need to learn how to draw a straight line. He was one who kind of taught you, hey, I did this building, let's go check it out. Like we went to Osaka and saw the fish building, the fish dance um, he did with Frank Gehry. And he's like, yeah, this was fun. We did this. And he tells you stories of how we got there. We met Tadawa Ando with him, Toyo Ito. And... These people respected Greg more than the, you know, like Greg was an amazing force friend. And I'm so happy he was, I've had him as a mentor in my life. Just great person. He would, oh, and he was a great karaoke singer. We, (laughs) okay. So you're, you're in
0: Japan. There's what, 11 or 12 of you total then, including you and and Greg? Yeah. About 12 of us total. You were there for how long? Um, Five months five months so yes yeah, so, so so you were able to absorb the culture for that period wow, of time then. Amazing. yeah and was the language barrier an issue did greg speak japanese none
1: of us spoke japanese i mean i would say japan was the hardest time of my life because i'm such an extrovert whereas I, <laughs> I remember coming home from japan and going to home depot and people talk english back to me and i was laughing so hard because i've I was almost quietly internal in Japan and it was so hilarious because I was like, oh my God, I could talk again. But I would, every single human in Japan was so welcoming, warm. And it was just, we tried, they tried. And it was just, I remember Alex Sexmith and I were somewhere in Japan. We got off a train and someone said, hey, can we take you to dinner to practice Japanese or practice our English? You could practice your Japanese. I'm like, Okay, we were students. And I remember telling my parents, like, you had a stranger take you out to dinner? It's like, yeah, it was fantastic, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. And where were you born and raised? Were you born and raised
1: in Southern California or somewhere else? No, I actually, I was born in Chicago. Um, so I grew up yeah. in Chicago. And then I was lucky enough to get accepted into SciArc. And I, I ran. I, I went to junior college for two years out of high school and studied architecture. My mom's like, well, you need to figure out if you want to do this because it's a it's a serious career. And at that time, I was like, well, I'd probably go to U of I or IIT in Chicago. And I didn't know too much about SciArc. And I went to College U-Page and my uh, professor at the time, um, David Leary, he went to Kentucky and he was kind of opened my mind to the West Coast and other schools. And Just I'm so excited to be here. And now I've been here 25 years and I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) I love it.
0: Going back to your time in Japan, so you then came back to LA after Japan. Mm -hmm. Did you have more time at sci after that or was that the
1: last semester? That was actually my last semester of school and um, I did undergrad at sci So at that time, thesis wasn't required and I said, well... Japan studio or thesis, I'm going to go to Japan and learn everything I can from myself for kind of the next steps in my career. And then when I came home, I actually was dating someone who grew up in the Galapagos and moved to the Galapagos for six months. So, I worked on a building for the Sea Shepherd there for six months and learned how to scuba dive and was a whole nother change in my perspective because – as I didn't speak Japanese, I didn't speak Spanish. So I had to learn kind of the new culture and new beings. Ecuador is not Japan and it's not the US. And um, I'm no longer with that girl either. So that's a whole different story. But it was a great kind of change of growing up out of college. So you travel the world, you see things differently and you, ex- you know, just do do the schoolwork but you experience life outside of a book and i think mm-hmm. that's one thing i think architects need to kind of understand is you need to live a bit to have perspective experience exactly yeah. and, I, yeah. and i love that
0: i have to ask when you were in the galapagos were you
1: working as an architect or were you just I was working on on the
0: beach (laughs) you were okay
1: (laughs) I was and we were doing a small building and yes there was a lot of beach days but the house I was living in was right on the water so there was sally crabs and iguanas and it just amazing amazing opportunity in my life okay that doesn't sound bad so between (laughs)
0: Japan and the Galapagos after that I'm assuming you came back
1: to LA at that point? I did, and I the way graduation worked for SciArc was, it was in the middle of the year, right after the spring session of school. So I finished in fall and went to the Galapagos, came back for graduation. I was offered a job right out of right at graduation, actually, to work with Jay Vanos, who's one of the main project architects for um, Erko and Moss, hmm. and worked with him for a bit and learned a lot.
0: Yeah, did you bring anything from Japan and, and the Galapagos back to LA? Was
1: there any influence from, particularly? I would imagine Japanese architecture. Well, I I think it's funny because LA is such an eclectic city. It's one of the most amazing melting pots of humanity. I think when you look at, you know, the food scene, architecture, and when you look at like Eric Moss, what he's done in Culver City for his buildings of you know this radical kind of Outside the box thinking. To I don't know if you know Shin Takamatsu in Japan. He does these crazy outlandish buildings, and Japan's a very structured society. Mm-hmm. And w- when you have these crazy pieces that kind of help define the paradigm shift in architecture, I think you could see the kind of playfulness and powerfulness architecture brings to our cities. I, I think it's mm. I don't know it's, it's great. I, I love. I love when you go to new cities. You know, we, we were in London and Paris last month and you kind of look at the new architecture in every city and how it changes the city and it changes mm-hmm. the urban fabric where there was an empty building and that ferry stop never stopped there. But now this whole new piece is part of the f- society that, you know, like you go to London and um, what's the project on the river, the electric company, the big it was a power plant. Oh, Battersea Power Station. Exactly. So I stopped mm-hmm. there in London this past trip and I was just blown away how when you change an area like that, it changes everything for everyone and it just mm-hmm. revitalizes the community. It just I love it. It just empowers communities and it's so great to be part of. I love it. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Battersea Power
0: Station. That was I would take the train almost every day past Battersea Power Station and that oh, was funny before any redevelopment and i'm of course excited that it was redeveloped but i also have a nostalgic memory of it when it was this incredible ruin on yeah the bank of the thames river in a spectacular area of london and the the fact that it wasn't redeveloped for so long i do in some ways miss the beauty of that
1: but I will well, be it's bad, funny because uh, you have your history for someone from the UK is so different from me as an American. Where you look at, you know, history for me is 50 years old. History for you is 500 years old, and you, yeah. you have this, yeah, yeah. My,
0: I mean, my school I went to when I was growing up was founded in the 1600s. So yeah, it I was. It. It's, yeah. A, it's a, LA is is still such a young, such a young city, even by American standards, but certainly by oh, global for sure. global yeah. standards, it's a very young city. So you are in your 20s, you're starting out the architecture career, you've had these amazing experiences in Japan and and Ecuador. Did you have a clear idea at that point about what kind of architecture you wanted to practice? Were there any architects you were really looking up to at the time? You obviously mentioned Eric and Moss, but I'm curious if there were others.
1: Tom Main was one of our instructors at school. Eric Moss was one of our instructors. Greg Walsh, who was one of mine, and Raymond Abraham was one of my instructors. And they've always done these amazing structures. And growing up in Chicago, my mom always tells me the story that when I was four, I wanted to be an architect and I always stuck with it. I've We'd go to the city, we'd see the big skyscrapers and was like, I'm going to build one of those. My, mom was like, my mom's like, no, you, you're going to build me a house. I'm like, no, I will never do houses. And to this day, I still love building big projects. I just mm-hmm. love the dynamicness of a large building. Complex buildings, I just, I love it. It's like building. It's like doing puzzles. It's kind mm-hmm. of that's what architecture is. It's problem solving, and I love solving problems. Mm-hmm. You know, I think also so much the fun. the impact of a large yeah. building, either public
0: or private, you're the, you're impacting so many more lives than if you do a single family home. And L.A. is obviously uh one of the hubs of creativity when it comes to single family homes in in America, but I'm right there with you. I enjoy the large, large projects. You mentioned uh, Jareday, and I and I do want to touch on on your time there. So, Jareday, I will admit, was actually not an architect I was aware of before moving to LA, and then coming here, I started working on the Westside Pavilion Mall, which was designed by him, and I started learning about the 1984 Olympics, where he had a huge impact, and you know, he really was someone who developed a reputation for the designing or reinventing really kind of public space, public commercial space in American cities and suburbs. And is, I think, to some extent, one of the most famous LA architects that are out there. So you, I think, spent about four years there. Tell me a little bit about what impact he had on on your career. And I'm interested to understand if, if he was
1: still practicing at the time you were there. So I was there in the early 2000s, and he was definitely still practicing. He was there. He was he was a, a firecracker of a human. He was amazing. He was one of those people who could do a sketch really quick and you kind of knew what it was, but he he knew what it was. Um, when I was in Japan, he actually did a lot of the projects there, some of the big projects in Kitakyushu. And um, the biggest thing for me with him was how people interacted with the projects. And it's kind of what I touched on with Chen, where when you you go through a building, it's not just a hotel. It's not, okay, I have 95% efficiency. This is this. It's about how do I get the community to come in? How do I get other things than just the program that the client's asking for mm-hmm. and create these gateways for cities? And I was fortunate enough to work there for four years. The recession hit, and that's what kind of ended my career there because mm-hmm. – for some reason, during the recession, nobody wanted re- international retail or, you know, anything like that. <laughs> but what it did, though, was really change my perspective on large buildings. So, I, I was really fortunate to work in India, China, Iceland, the wow. UK. So, I was able to travel along with work on these large, humongous projects. And that's – the scale was up at 3-4 million square feet each project. Wow. And it just – was astounding to think of, you know. You work on a house that's five thousand square feet, but the complexity of a building like this, you really get into, and you change communities with these, and it's it was very impactful working there. You've now been at
0: Smith Group for about nine years. What was it about the company in the first place that attracted you to Smith Group?
1: So I think I think Smith Group, other than some other of offices that people I know, colleagues I've known, friends I've known. The firm always puts you first. You get hired as – you get hired for your career, not for a job. And I feel Mm -hmm. like some places you go to interview, the first question you ask is, well, what job are you hiring me for? It's like, well, I'm hiring you for a position. And the first day I kind of walked in, I met Bonnie Conkeaton And she's just an amazing leader at our office. And she was like, you know, this is – your place to grow and your place to lead. It's up to you how you do it. And mm-hmm. I think the doors are have been open since the day I walked in for my career to grow, to not to grow. And the relationships I've built has just been amazing.
0: Is the culture of the office very different between all nineteen or is there a quite a common
1: thread that you think that runs through all of them? Uh, definitely are different. I mean, Detroit is our main hub where it started. Back in the 1800s, actually. So we were one oh, of wow. the oldest architecture companies in America. I think it's 1863. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. One of the first A&E companies in the US out of Detroit. The building in Detroit, Smith Group actually designed. So it's quite amazing. So the, what I was getting at is the scale of each office changes the the culture in each office. So Detroit is over 200 people. LA is under hundred. San Diego is under 50. San Francisco is about 150. So you get different culture, paradigm shifts with the amount of people you have. You have mm-hmm. the small office in San Diego, you have five people in Portland. And so you definitely feel a culture shift no matter where you're going to go. Mm-hmm. But as a firm, I could pick up the phone and call the head of the Roxanne, right now, and she'd answer the phone. Everybody's on a level playing field, and I absolutely love it. So, Smith Group and you have developed
0: quite a large expertise in healthcare and science and technology projects across the country. I'm curious from your perspective, in contrast to other projects, other typologies, what do you think are the key skills, and I have a sense what, how you might answer this, but what are the key skills that make a successful architect designing these complex life
1: science buildings? I think, and you probably get it, is, is teaming. I think making sure that everyone at the table understands what everybody's role is, what the expectations are, and clarity of roles from day one, and expectations Mm -hmm. and then from that point is respect and you can never over communicate with your partners I think that's kind of been my my lesson Mm -hmm. from every project is communication and trust and if you don't have that you're gonna fall apart on any project and I think that's the trust factor of your partners is the biggest thing no matter if it's your internal external or anything so
0: I couldn't agree with you more when it comes to building that trust how do you make sure that happens? And, and we all went through COVID where we weren't able to maybe meet face-to-face. How do you ensure that you're still able to build relationships, even if you are working with someone who's not in the same city or not someone who you're able to have a face-to-face conversation with?
1: I think transparency. And I think, you know, right now we're in that fun stage of another project we're doing is the value engineering part of a project. And being open to discussions. I think if you're always, as an architect or any person in general, shutting people down because your idea is the right idea, you're never going to have that line of communication. So, as an architect-contractor kind of dynamic, a lot of times architects are like, well, I drew this. This is right. But the perspective is you have to be open to change. You have to be open to a new way of thinking. My thinking changed as kind of a manager or of like – I'm a project architect is when I had kids. Mm. I had to just shut up and listen and it's not about me all the time. It's about how you how you tackle the problem. Like my kid could be tired. God, I didn't know he was tired. He just woke up. Like how could you be tired? You know, whereas the empathy factor of working with people, you have to have empathy and it's mm-hmm. it's a not a trait. It's just something you have to do and you have to have a perspective. So I think that's a huge factor in this mm-hmm. whole profession we do. I'm always an advocate of checking in with people ahead of yeah.
0: ahead of meetings and understanding that people have bad days, people have good days. You don't know what's happening in someone's life that might be impacting their exactly. work. Give people a little bit of space to make mistakes because you're going to make mistakes and you're going to want them to give you a little bit of space. That's, I think, really critical and not to pounce on people when you know, something didn't go quite quite how it was supposed to. So I want to move on to maybe the, the last kind of portion of the conversation and, and talk specifically about LA, which is of course, sort of the subject of of the podcast. You've worked in Los Angeles for the majority of your career mm-hmm. and studied at SCIARC. What
1: continues to inspire you about working in this city? You know, we have such an eclectic city. I could drive to Pasadena for um, Chen And that part of the city is a whole different part of town. You could go to Santa Monica and you have the beach and you have everything that's its own eclectic part. I love that you could experience new culture, new food, diversity with any part of our city. And it's not just you're going to the city and this is all it is. It's meat and potatoes or whatever it is. You you could go to 30 cities in Los Angeles and experience everything. I, I love the fact that my kids are growing up in Los Angeles and they have the best food anywhere in the country. I, I Sorry, New York, but we we really have everything in our hands anywhere, anytime we want. And our pizza is better too. Ooh, uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a <laughs> controversial, very controversial statement. <laughs> no, I'm from Chicago, it's, it's okay. Regardless of food, I, I do think that... Um, inspiration-wise you you have some of the kind of groundbreaking architects who you know the mid-century architecture throughout the city and it's just a different environment than anywhere you go it's a new city like you mentioned it's not this you're not building around history we're building history while we're here i'm I'm happy to and excited to be part of it i like the way you phrase that we're building history while we're here I,
0: i love that yeah so my last question for you Mark. What are your three favorite
1: buildings or places in Los Angeles? When I was at CyArk, they were building the Disney Concert Hall. And mm-hmm. um, it was such a fun and exciting thing to go tour as students. And it was the steel structure of the Disney Concert Hall. And they had all the steel kind of twisting and going all around. And I loved it before they skinned it. And then when they skin it, it's just this beautiful ribbons and everything throughout um, that's one of my favorite buildings to go to, because um, it's it was one of the most complex buildings around the country at the time in the early two thousands. You know the Bradbury Building. I love going. I go to coffee down there at right next door, and I walk in and I just, I just love feeling the architecture. I really enjoy the new pieces coming in. You know, like the new SOM building, the new courthouse um, in downtown. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's just a beautiful building. But then there's pieces like um, Frank Gary's little tree house in Venice on the boardwalk that I used to ride my bike every Saturday. Every Saturday, I would take Saturday off at CyArk. It was my day to reboot, shut off, like just the morning to noon, I would not do schoolwork. Wake up, mm-hmm. go on a bike ride, and I was on the bike path. And I always would look at that house and just like, wow, LA is <laughs> the weirdest town. Like, who would live in a tree house on the beach? And it just... <laughs> I love it because like when my parents come from Chicago, you walk down the street and no two houses are the same next door to each other. The city has its own flavor and everyone has their own image. It's just, it's a great town to be in. I, I love it. Well, Mark, really appreciate you coming on the show and I've really enjoyed the
0: conversation. Thank you.
1: Oh, me too, Sam. Thanks for having me. I
0: hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. As a bonus, if you have a couple of minutes, please consider rating the podcast and writing us a brief review. We'd really appreciate it. And of course, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to email me at sam at buildinglapodcast.com. Hope you tune in again soon.